Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss recent developments in India with my colleague Manu Bhagavan, who is professor of history, human rights, and public policy at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, and a senior fellow at the Ralph Bunch Institute. He's a specialist on the history, politics, and international affairs of modern India, and is the author or editor of many books, including most notably The Peacemakers, India and the Quest for One World, which came out in 2012, 2013, and India and the Cold War, of which he was editor uh, and came out in 2019. He's currently writing a biography of Madame Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit, one of the 20th century's most celebrated women and someone who played a pioneering role in international diplomacy. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Manu Bhagavan. Thank you for having me, John, and it's uh, nice to be able to see you and speak with you once again after a long hiatus. Indeed. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. So... We're hearing some worrisome news out of India in regard to the pandemic of late. It's now had more COVID cases in a single day than the United States has had in in its COVID experience. Although, of course, the United States is four times, or sorry, India is, of course, four times larger than the U.S. in population terms. Still, things have definitely been getting worse in India, and what's happening there is leading the larger surge of cases around the world. So can you tell us, you know, what's going on? Um, Sure. Well, um, uh, as you just indicated, uh, India is in the midst of a COVID surge. Um, According to experts, this is India's second major surge of COVID, um, for which it appears it was utterly unprepared. So just a quick rundown of where things stand at the moment. Um, As of yesterday, India was running over 300,000 new cases per day, and those numbers are increasing with each day, and over 2,000 deaths uh, per day. However, so uh, again, as you pointed out, uh, by percentage terms compared with the United States, this is is overall lower considering the size of India's population. But um, these are reported numbers, and experts have concluded that there is severe underreporting or misreporting uh, throughout the country, and um, that actual figures could be as great as anywhere as 10 to 20 times as great as the stated figures. So, for example, Time magazine ran an estimate that potentially as high as 400 million people are currently infected uh, in the country, or about one third. Um, But I'd say, you know, we can sort of uh, talk about a range 
of projected uh, cases using reported plus unreported of somewhere in the range of about one-fifth to one-third of the population currently being infected. Sounds pretty serious. And, and I mean, I've also seen reports to the effect, uh, well, basically saying something that uh, happened apparently a, a year or so ago as well in the early days of the pandemic, and that is uh, that significant numbers of people uh, who are essentially migrant workers in the cities uh, were concerned about the lockdowns. I mean, Modi's initial lockdown in March, April last year was very famously very severe. Um, and a lot of people just fled to the countryside because they were afraid they would be, you know, without a way of surviving, essentially, if they didn't go back to the families uh, that they had left behind in the countryside. And, of course, the problem with this in, in epidemic terms is that they may be, you know, taking the virus back with them to their, you know, villages and, and to the countryside from which they came. So, um you know, can you say a little bit about, I mean, it seems like a kind of very important case of uh, the kinds of economic effects that these shutdowns and, and lockdowns have on, you know, populations in the world that don't have a lot of, you know, economic alternatives. Um, so how would you say, you know, this has affected the economy and the well-being? Uh, I mean, leaving aside kind of the, the pandemic itself, I mean, how have the government responses uh, affected, um, you know, the population of India? Well, the news overall is bleak. Before I answer that, I, I think I should just give a little bit more setup, which is that um, India during the first wave, its, in, its, its initial response when COVID first came out was, as you just indicated, to impose a draconian lockdown nationwide. And um, it, that came with very little notice. So part of the problem with the lockdown was not so much just that there was a lockdown, but how it was done with what with what within what time frame uh, and how much flexibility or understanding people were given and what um, mechanisms were put in place to address various communities kinds of needs which varied from community to community depending on what kind of access they had um, and so the result of that was that uh, as you indicated there was a migrant labor crisis um, and they were the ones who were primary primarily affected that is to say people from the rural countryside come and work in the cities. Uh, and when the lockdown was imposed, they had nowhere to go. Uh, and so they tried to flee back to their villages. Uh, they wound up packing train stations. Uh, they couldn't get on the trains. And then they congregated there, creating super spreader events, uh, and then eventually took the virus back to the villages. Um, and uh, that made the first wave um, worse than it uh, should have been or needed to be. Now, that said, uh, India's whole experience with COVID has been extremely unique. Uh, so its first wave, um, which ran roughly until September of 2020, uh, was less than many projections uh, had expected, uh, significantly less. Um, and then all of a sudden in September or October, starting around October of 2020, the numbers simply plummeted. And then India became uh, uh, an epidemiological mystery. Nobody really uh, could come up with 
a real explanation, and, and subsequently, uh, until this point, nobody has yet as well, uh, which is that COVID seemed to miraculously disappear. Um, all kinds of ex- explanations have been put forward. Maybe it was the youth of the population. Maybe it was exposure to other kinds of disease. Maybe it was, um, you know, uh, immune systems which were uh, pumped up from um, uh, other other pathogens. Uh, it could have to do with low obesity rates. Um, anyway, all kinds of things were postulated as to the as to the explanation as to why India's numbers were so low. Um, but whatever the explanations were, there was story after story in the international press. Um, by January, uh, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, sort of started chest thumping and claiming that India had defeated COVID uh, with its rigorous uh, proposals and policies, uh, and um, that the country had a lot to be proud of. Not only had it defeated COVID, but that it was unique in the world, and that it had. Uh, engaged um, uh, national resources uh, against the virus. Um, and then people basically let their guard down. Oh, I, I, I left out one important um, claim for the drop in the virus, which was there was a heavy mask mandate um, in the country, and, and people were adopting that um, significantly. Um, the, the, after um, January of 2021, uh, people let their guard down. They stopped wearing masks. They stopped social distancing, and they started large congregations uh, again. Um, and then, on top of that, uh, there, it's election season, and there was a religious festival. Uh, and all of this combined has led to where we are uh, right now. In terms of economic impact, India has an extremely young population, and uh, that young population needs jobs. Uh, so one of the bigger crises that the country had been facing pre-pandemic was how do you create jobs for so many people and how do you sustain it because they're so young? So uh, you have to invest uh, in all kinds of ways and you have to create public and private sector positions to accommodate that many people. Um, and uh, there was a lot of controversy about you know what the government was doing. Uh, to, to sort of spur that kind of growth. But subsequently, uh, and there, there were certain issues. Obviously, there was a great deal of wealth generation in the country. It has been for years. Uh, a number of people have moved out of poverty, uh, growing the middle class. Um, and so these were some success stories. There was also some overt changes in cities, infrastructure between cities, and so on. Uh, but subsequently, pe- uh, from the pandemic, not only do we see a, a sluggish economy, but we see people falling out of the middle class in huge numbers. Like one third of the middle class has moved back into poverty uh, in the last in the last uh, year or so. As a result so, of COVID. Um, yeah. Well, as a in result effect. of COVID, as a result of COVID, and you multiply this by um, the previous lack of investment in jobs or preparation for these kinds of things. And uh, the, the country is set back significantly. Now, I will say that some uh, economic forecasts had projected um, that with the economic stimulus in the United States, that India was one of the countries that was set to benefit in some ways from a global resurgence starting this summer. Um, but right now, that does not that no longer looks 
uh, really viable. I mean, I'd say that the country is set back significantly. That's unfortunate. Um, so, um, I mean, I guess one question is, how is the vaccine rollout going? I mean, my understanding is that the uh, target number is something like 300 million, which is, of course, only less than a quarter of the population. Uh, and the, the point that you make about the youthfulness of the Indian population, I think, is also an important one. I mean, it was conjectured early on in the pandemic that Africa because of the relative youthfulness of its population, might emerge relatively unscathed. And I'm not sure exactly how, you know, whether people think that's actually been the case or not. Um, and I'm trying to get somebody from the Africa CDC to talk about what's going on there, who just put out an article in The Lancet on this. But in any case, um, you know, uh, how's the vaccine rollout going? Not so well, I gather. And are there the kinds of age restrictions that we have uh, in the United States and in European countries? Or is that how is how is it you know being organized? OK, so um, India uh, is one of the largest pharmaceutical and vaccine producers in the world, thanks predominantly to uh, what's called the Serum Institute of India, which is based in uh, the western part of the country out of Pune, the city of Pune in the state of Maharashtra. Um, that isn't the only place, but that's, that's one of the largest producers. Um, and uh, Serum Institute has contracted uh, with a number of places to produce vaccines uh, for India, as well as for much of the rest of the world. India produces 60%. Uh, it was expected to produce 60% of uh, the vaccine for the rest of the world. Um, and uh, India was, it, Serum Institute in particular was contracted with AstraZeneca to produce the Oxford vaccine. The local brand name for it is Covishield um, in India. Uh, in addition, India indigit indigenously developed its own vaccine, Covaxin, uh, and uh, the trials for that also looked very good, that it was a highly uh, uh, efficacious vaccine. Um, and so, uh, on on the face of it, India looked like it was positioned to do very well. It also has a long history of vaccine rollout and successful successfully vaccinating huge numbers of people. Um, so in this interim period where it looked like COVID was defeated and um, India was set to do all of this with vaccine production, uh, people really uh, were grew very proud of the country. Uh, and and the prime minister sort of played up on that, and they engaged in what's called vaccine diplomacy. They started shipping doses of vaccines to all kinds of other countries around the world who needed it. Uh, it was an act of generosity, and it was also an act of diplomacy, strategic diplomacy. And then the bottom came out. Um, so originally, uh, the uh, vaccine rollout was targeted at the elderly population, as it was elsewhere uh, in the world. Um, and then they dropped the age limit to 45. That's where it stands currently, and those with certain kinds of conditions. Um, but uh, the vaccine rollout was sluggish from the beginning, in part because people believed that the um, pandemic was over. So they didn't see any rush, any need to go get it. And Covaxin, um, the, the indigenous vaccine, uh, initially was. Um, uh, the, the the data regarding Covaxin was opaque. 
And so people's confidence in exactly what it was or, or whether they would be mandated to get that was a bit low. Um, and even with Covishield, people sort of had questions. So all of that combined with the fact that they thought that the pandemic was over led to a sort of uh, sluggish response to receiving the vaccine, much slower than expected. The prime minister did get vaccinated on, in, um, on camera, and that helped a little bit. Uh, but by and large, um, people responded slowly, and there wasn't a designated campaign to really sort of uh, get this going fast enough. As of right now, about 10% of the population have received one dose of the vaccine, at least one dose, but only about 2%, a little over 2%, are fully vaccinated. Uh, These are grim numbers, uh, and now we have got a whole set of other problems. So uh, now um, there appears to be a vaccine shortage. Uh, The country has announced that they'll expand the age cap so that by May the 1st, everyone um, 18 and older will be able to get the vaccine if they, uh, when they wish. Um, but the problem is, is that, as I said, there is a vaccine shortage and no one understands exactly where the mac- the, the things are magically going to come from in time. Um, this time the center has decentralized, uh, vaccine purchasing to the states. Um, that's leading to competition between states and raises questions about, um, the cost, ultimate cost of what the shots will be in the various states. So people claim that the current government uh, is playing politics. Uh, it certainly appears that they very well might be. Um, and uh, so how they mitigate this is still up in the air. The plan originally was that the vaccine would be free for everyone at all government clinics and would cost no more than a, ca- a small capped price at, at any private clinic. Uh, but subsequently, we don't know where things stand right now. Is there uh, a vaccine hesitancy problem? It doesn't seem like that's a problem right now. I think mm-hmm. people will are are sort of desperately ready for a vaccine shot. Um, but um, at the moment, the bigger problem appears to be uh, in production. Now, Adar Punawala, who's the guy who runs Serum Institute, um. He's said that part there's a two-part problem having to do with um, in, uh, the United States, essentially, which is that the U.S., that India needs some raw materials in order to be able to produce more vaccine. Now, this sort of has gotten confused in the press. People have concluded this means all vaccines, and I think he's clarified very recently that a COVID shield, the Oxford vaccine, can continue to be produced, but there's another vaccine in lineup, the Novavax vaccine, and for that they need more raw materials from the United States. The Defense Production Act in the United States, I think, is what's um, uh, causing the problem, which is that U.S. production has to be prioritized. U.S. needs have to be prioritized through that. So they're trying to work this out in a way where people can get the necessary stuff uh, to India. And the other problem has to do with um, additional vaccines. The US, for example, is sitting on a stockpile of AstraZeneca vaccine, which we're highly unlikely to use. Uh, and so that's something that could could be, um, you know, sort of shipped out over there. And then there's smaller things like uh, remdesivir, oxygen, um, PPE. These are things the country is in desperate need of. Again, it has indigenous manufacturing capacity, but right now the need is grossly outstripping its manufacturing capacity. Right. 
Well, hopefully that'll get addressed soon, and hopefully the flow of vaccines to the other parts of the world will also get ramped up. I mean, we did a podcast a couple of months ago, I guess now, about the importance of getting the whole world vaccinated uh, based on it. We had a conversation with a couple of Turkish economists who have been involved in studying you know, the economic consequences of that not happening, and they're bad for us as well as you know, for those parts of the world where the people do not get vaccinated. But let's switch gears a little bit to what I think is really your kind of scholarly wheelhouse, which is India's foreign relations. I mean, many people, including me and this podcast, have been, you know, particularly uh, attuned to the, you know, rise of China, basically, as, um, you know, the leading competitor, um, rival, whatever the proper term might be. Uh, to the United States and to some degree to the West as such. And, you know, I wonder if it seems to me that India and China have long had, you know, not exactly warm relations, not necessarily cold, but um, uh, often, uh, you know, not, not the warmest and sometimes, you know, sort of bleeding out over into conflict. And I wonder how you would characterize, you know, India's response to the perception in the world, I think, that, you know, China is on the, on the rise, is in the ascendant, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I'd say India originally had, uh, dating back to um, its immediate post-independence period, had hoped for very positive relations with China. Um, they developed a, a five-point program of peace, famously, um, and uh, talked about Indian-Chinese uh, brotherhood. Um, and uh, things fell apart for a number of different reasons, uh, having to do with Tibet, um, having to do with um, uh, economic uh, policy um, and uh, bombast on the part of certain politicians and, and so on. Um, anyway, this culminated in a war uh, in 1962, uh, where China invaded India, uh, and then looked like they had, and that nothing was going to stop them. And they, they could march all the way down to Delhi. Um, the United States, uh, was prepared to intervene and then China just suddenly withdrew. So the effect was to humiliate, uh, India and the prime minister, reduce its stature on the international stage. Uh, and that subsequently, um, uh, put cold water on the relationship. Uh, and, and that lasted for a long period of time. Um, more recently, um, um, India had again tried to warm relations with China and um, was looking to, to um, uh, forge partnerships uh, and to look for common growth. Um, many people in India throughout the 2000s uh, looked at China admiringly for its economic growth for its incredible economic growth and it, its rapid development of its cities, uh, technological advancement, uh, and and looked at it very admiringly and looked to try to replicate that kind of success in India. Um, and then um, uh, people started in the West started you know raising some questions about what China was doing, uh, and they postulated positioning India against China. Uh, you know, as a check on China's uh, growth. Uh, a lot of policymakers in India reacted against that and said, no, India is no one's pawn. We're not going to be positioned against China. 
you know, we can, we can have productive relationships with everyone. Uh, so it, um, and then two things happened. Um, China launched this thing, the Belt and Road Initiative, which was a global connectivity project, uh, and it was sort of global infrastructure, but a way to sort of build connections with uh, all kinds of countries around the world. And India sort of hedged on that. Uh, it China looked like it was rising to the level of a a, a, a global dominating kind of power. Uh, as opposed to um, a partnering kind of power. There was some starting to grow some fear in Indian circles about that. Um, And then uh, there's been long simmering smaller land disputes between India and China, and those flared up recently. Um, Again, into, um, I'd say, relatively minor military skirmish, but with it sort of set the stage for uh, the potential for um, a more animus uh, between the countries. And then the pandemic hit uh, and um, the response in India combined with all these other things uh, was much, it was similar to uh, the kinds of things that happened in the United States uh, initially, which is um, there there was a rise in anti-Chinese sentiment, predominantly against China as a state, but the attendant uh, racial discriminatory beliefs uh, crept up with that as well. And subsequently, there has been um, ever-growing suspicion uh, between the two countries. Um, India, in the meantime, has uh, partnered with some other countries into a new alliance called the Quad. Uh, The United States, Australia, Japan, and India have forged a diplomatic partnership. Um, And um, this is an important partnership, uh, which some see as just generally strategic, uh, but many people are looking at this through the lens of creating an Indo-Pacific um, alliance, which again is read as a check on China. Um, from China's perspective, you know this is um, unfair, and that it's uh, you know try, they're trying to contain something that doesn't need to be con- you know doesn't need to be contained. Um, and we're seeing um, some potential realignments, uh, say, between Russia and China uh, and India and the United States. So things are in flux right now. There's a great deal of concern um, in policy circles uh, about where this could be headed. Uh, I think it's incumbent on everyone to try to cool temperatures uh, as best as possible. Um, I don't think another conflict would be good for anyone. Well, indeed. Uh but uh, one of the ways in which the <clears throat> the region is in flux is that the United States has now announced that it's really finally de- definitively withdrawing from Afghanistan. And I wonder how you think that's going to affect, you know, the local, the regional uh, kind of geopolitical calculus. Um, Afghanistan is, is, um, is a complex. I think, you know, the United States... Um, it's one of these very tricky situations where it has uh, gotten itself involved in this place. It has harmed. Uh, it is it in its involvement. It has um, caused some harm, um, but obviously, uh, this is a place that has had and before U.S. intervention had additional problems with the Taliban and as a base for Al Qaeda and uh, its border in the borderlands with Pakistan. Um, and that it's suffered from terrorism uh, significantly. 
so the U.S. India had tried to play a role in in uh, building uh, partnerships with the Afghan government and to um, try to play peacemaker in the region. Um, this is something that India's uh, neighbor and longstanding rival Pakistan did not necessarily look on favorably because it saw India as sort of leapfrogging Pakistan, literally, meaning jumping over Pakistan to sort of forge uh, a partnership with a neighbor on the other side. Um, and uh, so there's been some strategic competition between India and Pakistan in Afghanistan over um, an alliance. And then in the meantime, China has also tried to forge partnerships with Afghanistan. So the U.S. withdrawal in this sense leaves Afghanistan to be a site of continuing regional uh, gamesmanship between India, Pakistan, and China, as well as the continuing sort of fallout from um, uh, a very long war, military conflict, and bombing campaigns on the part of the West, and localized terrorism caused by the the Taliban and and Um, Al-Qaeda. The Taliban is still a force and um, people are looking to sort of, you know, forge a workable relationship with them in the hopes of creating some kind of peacetime function. But how this all plays out is is really very much up in the air. Uh, what exactly um, the Taliban are aiming to do or what they'll agree to do is, is still unknown. Right. So, I mean, you raise uh, Pakistan, which in a certain sense, at least indirectly, raises the religious question in India. I mean, in, people forget that India has the world's largest Muslim population, which I think is in the neighborhood of 300 million people, uh, and of course has long been, you know, not exactly uh, at war with, but uh, you know, at odds with Pakistan since the partition. Um, and I wonder, um, you know, I mean modern democracy in India is supposed to be based on a kind of secularism. Uh, but that's obviously been much uh, honored in the breach, shall we say, by the BJP, of which Mr. Modi is the uh, chief figure. Uh, and uh, I guess I wonder, you know, what you could tell us about how you expect, you know, the religious sort of issue in uh in India, within India primarily, uh, to evolve? Um, What should we expect on that front? Um, Secularism has been on the retreat uh, in India for uh, some time. Um, Originally, when um, Mr. Modi came to power, uh, he promised development for all, and he, he really made the case that a lot of people's fears about him were unfounded. People's fears about him were based on his experience as chief minister of the state of Gujarat in the West, where a uh, large-scale violence against the Muslim population had occurred uh, back in 2002 that many people had concluded was a pogrom uh, of a kind uh, that is directed violence against uh, the Muslim population. And, and many people had claimed he was uh, responsible, at least indirectly, uh, or held him responsible or accountable, at the very least, for, for those kinds of things. There were a lot of charges about that. And he lo- and his allies had long maintained that he was unfairly uh, 
targeted for this, that this is something that had just occurred and that he bore no uh, uh, actual feelings of this kind. Um, and during his first tenure as prime minister, his first term, um, he largely hewed to, um, you know, the, the kinds of claims that he was making. He sort of walked a delicate line between uh, international image as a cosmopolitan and a domestic uh, image as a strongman. Um, in the second term, after he won re-election recently, uh, a lot of that veneer has disappeared. Uh, and he's um, the, the country has uh, done a lot to start um, uh, attacking some of the fundamental principles um, uh, of the founding of the country. Uh, and that's left many um, minority communities feeling um, helpless and scared um, and in, at risk. Um, and this has to do with citizenship laws. It has to do with um, policy for migrants uh, coming in. Um, it has to do with uh, the ways in which various communities are treated in the country. Uh, um, and um, and, and we can also see this reflected in violence against various communities as well. Um, so in short, um, Modi subscribes to a muscular form of Hindu nationalism. He's never hidden that and he's never claimed otherwise. But he's claimed that this Hindu nationalism was something that was not necessarily at odds with uh, India's original vision that it was uh, meant to erode a false secularism. Um, but uh, in practice now we see that that is, that is something uh, which um, is... is is what people had always feared it was, which is an illiberal philosophy. Um, now, at the moment, uh, India, uh, Modi's claim to fame has been as an efficient administrator, and that um, what he had delivered for the state of Gujarat as chief minister was remarkable um, uh, and unheard of in India's long history. Uh, and that he was going to bring this to the country as a whole. Um, he is a terrific order, and he's even better at um, public relations. Uh, so people had really believed that he was able to do these things. Um, but what the pandemic is revealing is that the country ultimately um, has not invested enough in public health, and that its infrastructure cannot uh, bear the brunt of a real crisis, and that in in terms of dealing with it, he's proven right now anyway uh, to have not planned effectively for India's defense, and that a defense against this virus is is what uh, is an appropriate way to describe it. Um, and he's proving inefficient at being able to combat it. Uh, to 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 continue with a sort of militaristic metaphor, so um, I think people are beginning. To well, they're upset right now. Whether this will dent his image ultimately, or cost him at the polls, um, or uh, whether it will impact him uh, in any way and thereby impact the overall trend towards desecularization uh, is yet to be seen. But that's where we were at a pivot point right now.
Right. So I, I want to kind of go back to something you said before, which had to do with the you know rise and the broadening of India's middle class in the period before the pandemic. I mean, insofar as we can perhaps hopefully see, you know, the end uh, or at least the kind of uh, mitigation of the pandemic. Um, I mean, how do you see India coming out of this phase? I mean, is it going to be able to, you said a lot of people had fallen out of the middle class and, and you know, backward steps were, were serious. Um, I mean, can it get back on track to being the country that it was before the pandemic? I mean, in the abstract, the, the answer to that is, of course, yes. Um, uh, I mean, one only needs to look at the United States to see how uh, effective policymaking can dramatically change projections, uh, both of the immediate future and uh, and in the longer term as well. Um, and so, uh, it is possible that. Uh, if carefully considered, and uh, if they place the right kinds of policies in place, that India can get itself back on track, uh, and that uh, it can it can go back to uh, you know growing the economy, dealing with inequality um, in all its forms, uh, and um, uh, aiming for lar- rapid and large uh, economic growth. Um, while also worrying about bigger crises like climate change and and, and other things, so preparing for that as well. Um, but right now, um, its 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 immediate concern has to be in mitigating the pandemic um, and uh, reducing the loss of life um, and um, trying to get itself out of a disaster, like a real disaster, a, a horror show. Um, and um, I'm the, the, that exact path forward is unclear, although, you know, we're beginning to see uh, some um, uh, advice take shape about some steps that it can take. And hopefully if the international community gets involved um, and can deliver certain resources um, to, to, to cut this off, it, it might be possible. I will say just on this point that it is in the international community's interest and and at, even at national level. So it's in the United States specific national interest to, you know, stop what is happening in India right now as quickly as possible. Um, and that's specifically because the more COVID uh, races around communities, the more it transmits, the more variants will generate, uh, and the more at risk everyone around the world will be um, for in, like a, a variant that is either uh, more transmissible or more deadly or both. And there is right now a variant circulating in India. We don't know enough about it, B.1.617, uh, which is often referred to as the, quote, double mutation virus because it has two particular mutations uh, that make it more transmissible and, and, and potentially riskier. We don't know a lot about this virus, but we do seem to have some evidence to indicate that in some parts of India, it is it is the variant that is more dominant, uh, and there is this. We can use that as the example that um, the pandemic left unchecked anywhere uh, can create uh, very risky um, alternatives to the extant viruses, 
that put everyone else at risk, including those who are already vaccinated. Um, right now, it looks like uh, the vaccines uh, can keep everything in check. And everyone, of course, should be vaccinated. Um, but it's, it's key for all of us to act quickly against any hotspot anywhere in the world so that we can temper uh, the rapid growth of the virus uh, and its ability to mutate. Well, nothing could be a better reminder that we really live in one world now. And of course, climate change, the issue of the day in the United States this week certainly uh, is a similar reminder. But of course, it's individual countries that have to come together and address these uh, these issues, and they don't always have the same uh, the same interests or don't perceive their interests the same way. And of course, that makes for bottlenecks in in addressing these. But that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much <coughs> to Manu Bhagavan of Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center for sharing his insights about recent developments in India. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for, for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks again, Manu Bhagavad. Thanks for having me. 